And good morning, church family. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 16. Revelation chapter 16. We're going to look at the entire chapter together. And if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 1037. I've entitled today's message, Countdown to Armageddon. And we'll begin in a word of prayer. Then consider this text. Let's bow together. Our Lord, we are so grateful for another Sunday morning to gather together as a church family, to renew our fellowship with one another, to join our voices in worship to you. And Lord, I pray that you would help us now as we seek to bow our hearts before the text of your word. Lord, help us to seek understanding, to seek wisdom from it, and help us, Lord, to make proper application of it to our lives. We pray that we would leave this place more spiritually vibrant than we were when we arrived, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if you spend a lot of time around people, you've probably seen someone who has a long tattoo etched on their arm with these words. Only God can judge me. It's become extremely popular to have this tattoo over the past decade. And there is truth in the statement. The scriptures affirm that there is only one supreme judge, therefore only one who is qualified to render any final judgment against us. And yet to be fully accurate, I think the person would need a second tattoo etched on their other arm which reads, and he will judge me. He will judge me. You see, the scriptures teach us that God is not only qualified to be our final judge, but that one day he will render a judgment. He will render his judgment on each one of us. As Paul said to the church in Corinth, we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And as the author of Hebrews said to his readers, It is appointed unto man to die once, and after that, to face judgment. Here in the book of Revelation, we've been learning about God's end times judgments, the judgments that will fall on the whole world one day. And we've particularly been taken up with God's tribulation judgments. They started in chapter 6 of this book. They extend all the way to chapter 19. So this is what most of Revelation is taken up with. We have learned that God's tribulation judgments will extend over a period of years and that they will come in a series of waves, that they will be directed at all of those whom God has judged to be his enemies. And here in Revelation chapter 16, we have the final wave of those tribulation judgments. They are called the bowl judgments. There are seven of them, just like there were seven seal judgments, and seven trumpet judgments. And once these judgments are concluded, the great tribulation will be over. The kingdom of God will be inaugurated on the earth. This morning we're going to walk through these seven bold judgments. We're going to see that the severity of these judgments is almost beyond human imagination. 
And friends, I will take no pleasure going through these judgments with you, and yet I will do so because I believe that God has put these uh, words in the Bible for our spiritual profit. So it's for our good that we learn about these judgments which will soon befall the world of unbelief. As we go through these uh, judgments together, I want you to be thinking this thought in your mind. This is the thought that came up in my mind over and over again in my study this week. It's this, blessed is the man who is ready for Christ's appearing. Blessed is the man who will not have to endure these tribulation judgments. Blessed is the man who has counted God's friend and not God's enemy. Let's look at these judgments together and see what horrors such a person will escape. We begin in verse 1. It reads, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go forth and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Okay, so here we see the, the order for the seventh, uh, seven bowls to be poured out. The order is given by God himself, and then he delegates the work to seven angels. Now, one by one, the angels will pour out their judgment. We turn out to the first bowl judgment, verse 2. It reads, And so the first angel went, poured out his bowl on the earth, and here's the result, And harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. So the first bold judgment brings a global health crisis. It brings a plague of painful sores on the bodies of those who have taken the mark of the beast. That is to say, it falls upon those who have chosen to follow Antichrist rather than the true Christ, who have decided to declare their allegiance to Antichrist's kingdom rather than choosing to be a part of Christ's kingdom. Upon them, these painful sores will come. And you see that it is a judgment fitting the crime. They got the mark of the beast, and so now God gives them a mark of painful sores. That's the first bowl judgment. Now we look at the second bowl, verse 3. It says, And the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse. And every living thing died that was in the sea. And then the third bowl judgment, verse 4, says, And the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. So the first bowl judgment brings the global health crisis. The second and third bowl judgments bring a global ecological crisis. The, the second bowl is poured into the ocean waters. All marine life is killed, and the water itself is left as blood. And then that third bowl judgment is poured out on all of the freshwater sources. Undoubtedly, all of that marine life also dies, and that water is rendered blood. Now, why would God do this? Why turn the waters into blood? We read why in verse 6. It says, For they, that is, those who have taken the mark of the beast, who are following Antichrist, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets. 
And you, God, have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. So again, it is a judgment fitting the crime. They shed the blood of God's people, and so now God gives them blood to ingest, blood to drink. Then the fourth bowl judgment, verses 8 and 9, says, And the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun. It was allowed to scorch people with fire, and they were scorched by the fierce heat. So the first bowl judgment is a global health crisis. Second and third bowl judgments are a global ecological crisis. The fourth bowl judgment is a global climate crisis. Catastrophic global warming. God allows the heat of the sun to scorch the residents of the earth below. Now, how will the unregenerate world respond to these bold judgments? What will they do? Well, look at the second half of verse 9. It says they were scorched by the fierce heat, and in response, they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. And they did not repent and give him glory. Now, friends, these verses point us to one of the purposes of these tribulation judgments. We've discussed this before. One of the purposes of these judgments is to break the unregenerate world of its spiritual lethargy. It's to help people understand that the wages of sin is death. This is also why God stretches these judgments out over a period of years, and he doesn't bring them all at once. It's why they increase in severity over time, rather than all falling in their worst possible case at once. You see, God is is bringing these judgments, helping people to understand that sin is self-destructive. You wage war against God and you will lose. It's to give people time to process these facts. It's to help them to see the increasing severity that comes as we continue in our disposition to sin. It's designed to confront people with their need for repentance. It's to confront people with their need to say, look, my sin is doing nothing good for me. Being apart from God, separated from Him, there's no value in this. Life is not better without God. It's worse. It's to cause people to want to repudiate their sins, to turn to God and seek His his pardon, to come to the gift of pardon that God provides through the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's to cause people to begin glorifying God, to see that God is mightier than men, to see that He is mightier than the ocean waves, He's mightier than the heavenly bodies, He's mightier than everything, and so He should be worshipped. It's to cause people to see the futility of trying to fight against God. That's what these judgments are for. It's one of their purposes. You know, friends, if anyone in this tribulation period were to respond to God in that way and to say, God, I repudiate my sin, I beg you for forgiveness, I claim your Son, Jesus Christ, as my Savior... I count his payment for sin to be mine now. I declare him to be Lord. I will pledge my allegiance to him, not to Antichrist. Anyone in this tribulation period who would do that would be forgiven. 
their slate wiped clean, they would be saved. They would be destined for life and not wrath. But sadly, the condition of the human heart is such that apart from the grace of God, no one will make that choice. Even when the terrible consequences of sin begin to compound, even when it threatens a person's very life, they will not let go of that sin. That is the condition of the human heart. We just love our sin too much to let it go. And so, during this tribulation period, the judgments will continue. And that brings us to the fifth bowl judgment, verse 10. It says, And the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, that is the Antichrist. The seat of Antichrist power is now being um, attacked. Fifth angel pours out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness, and people gnawed their tongues in anguish. So the first bold judgment is a global health crisis. Second and third judgments are ecological crises. The fourth is a climate crisis. And now the fifth bold judgment is a plague of darkness, which is very reminiscent of the way that God dealt with the Pharaoh back in ancient times when Pharaoh refused to let the Israelites out of slavery. You remember, God shrouded his kingdom in darkness. He does it here again, or he will do it again with the kingdom of Antichrist. This darkness is meant as an omen that the worst of God's judgments are yet to come. See, as bad as they have been, they're only going to get worse. And again, it is meant to shake all followers of Antichrist out of their complacency, to shake them free of their love for sin, to compel them to repent and see that God is worth their worship. They ought not to oppose him. But how will they respond? Well, just like they had before. Look at verse 11 now. It says, People gnawed their tongues in anguish, and they cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. Do you see this awful pattern? It happened with the seal judgments and with the trumpet judgments, and now with the bowl judgments, that they are, they are brought to bear on the unregenerate world. And they increase in severity as they go. And there are pauses throughout the judgments. And people are given an opportunity to forsake their sin, come under the lordship of Christ and be saved. And they choose to reject the opportunity. They harden their hearts against God. They become more hostile to Him than they were before. And they persist in this State of rebellion and unbelief. And so the judgments continue to fall. We read now of the sixth bold judgment in verse 12. It says, And the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and his water was dried up. Here's why. To prepare the way for the kings from the east. Now, friends, this is the Bible's last reference to the Euphrates River. And as we learn in chapter 9, this is a river with a very long and dark history. And so it's not surprising that its name should reappear here at the end of God's tribulation judgments. 
Recall that the Euphrates was the name of one of the four rivers that passed through the Garden of Eden, which means this river was the site of the world's first act of spiritual defiance as Adam and Eve turned away from God. The Euphrates was also the site of the world's first lie, the world's first murder, and the world's first act of divine judgment. Then after Noah's flood, when the world was reshaped, a new river was given the name Euphrates. This is the one we know about today. It's the one that cuts through Iraq, 1,800 miles top to bottom. After the flood, that river became the new cradle of civilization and the new center of human rebellion against God. It was along the Euphrates River that humanity defied God with the Tower of Babel, prompting God to confuse human languages and scatter human beings across the planet. Later on, when God made his covenant with Abraham, he established the Euphrates River as the eastern border of the promised land. Everything inside of the Euphrates River was holy land. Everything outside of that river, the land of the pagans. As the Old Testament scriptures unfold, we see some of Israel's greatest enemies invading them from the Euphrates River. That includes the Assyrian Empire and the Babylonian. So for all of these reasons, the word Euphrates is synonymous with sin and rebellion and judgment in Scripture. And here we see, as the tribulation period is reaching its great climax, God will dry up the Euphrates River in order to prepare the way for kings from the east. A massive invasion force will find it easy to make its way into the Holy Land, the headquarters of Antichrist's kingdom. What God is doing with this sixth bold judgment is helping the Antichrist and all who have followed him to start feeling really vulnerable. See, maybe they have felt mighty as their kingdom was, has been built up, as they have put down the people of God all over the world. Maybe they have begun to feel invincible. And so God brings these judgments upon their bodies, upon their waters, upon their sun, and now drying up the river Euphrates, you see, He's making them feel their vulnerability. That border, which had long protected the heart of the empire, it's going to be taken away from them. Passage of an invading force will become very, very easy. Surely, surely they will want to repent and turn to God after this. Well, is that what they do? Let's look at verses 13 and 14 and read what their response will be. John writes, And then I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, that is the devil, and out of the mouth of the beast, that's Antichrist, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, that's the religious leader in, in Antichrist's kingdom, I saw coming out of their mouths three unclean spirits, like frogs. See, frogs are the quintessential unclean creatures. Verse 14, They are demonic spirits performing signs, who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. So God has shrouded Antichrist's kingdom in darkness. He has dried up the Euphrates River. He is making way for armies from the east to come into the Holy Land 
And how does he respond? Not with repentance, not with faith. He responds by sending out his messengers, demonic messengers, who will go through all the earth, who will compel all of his allies around the world to raise up their own armies and bring them into the heart of his empire, bring them into the Holy Land too, where they can confront the invaders in battle. This will be the response of Antichrist and all who bear his mark to all of the great works of God in the tribulation period. It's all going to come down to this. In their hostility toward God, in their refusal to repent, they will try to wage war against God himself. Antichrist and all of his allies gathering soldiers to meet God on the battlefield to put down invaders, to quash the people of God, maybe to take the battle to heaven itself. Who knows what his thinking will be? Down at verse 16, it says, And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Now, literally, that word means Mount Megiddo. Up in northwestern Israel, there is a, a mountain called Megiddo. There's a great plain in front of that mountain. It's been the site of many battles in Israel's history. And this will be the staging ground for the great and final act of rebellion against God as the armies of the world gather to confront each other and to confront the God of heaven to try to win a decisive victory over him once and for all. And so, my friends, God's final judgment will fall. The seventh bowl of his wrath. Look at verses 17 through 21 with me. It says, And the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. Notice these bowls have been poured out on the earth, on the waters, in the sky, on the heavenly bodies. And now they are poured out in the air. Every realm of the created order has been touched by these bold judgments. Here's what happens when the bowl is poured out. It says, And a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. It is done. This is the last of the tribulation judgments. It's all going to be finished now. God's wrath has been exhausted. It's finished. Kingdom of Antichrist is now finished. He will be gone. His empire will be gone. It will all be swept away. The dawning of Christ's kingdom on earth is about to be witnessed. The seventh bowl brings the end of all things that we have known. The beginning of God's glorious kingdom on earth. Look at verses 18 and following. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there never had been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. And the great city, that's Jerusalem, split into three parts. And the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. Verse 20, and every island fell away, excuse me, fled away. 
and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. The final bowl judgment brings massive topographical changes to the earth. The major cities of the world are reduced to dust. Jerusalem itself is broken up into three pieces. Islands sink beneath the ocean waters. Mountains begin to turn to rubble. What's happening here is that the the old earth is melting away. It's being prepared for its recreation at the end of Christ's millennial reign. And all the while, my friends, all the while, as these horrors are unfolding on the earth, do you know what will be happening in heaven? The saints and angels in heaven will be singing. They will still be singing. We've seen this throughout the whole book. No matter what God does, no matter what's happening on the earth below, the people of God and the angels of God in heaven, they are rejoicing. And they're singing their praises to God. Look at verses 5 through 7. We, we skipped over these earlier. It reads, And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Now here is his song. Say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. So as the seven bulls are being poured out on the kingdom of Antichrist below, up in heaven, the angels and the saints... The martyrs under the altar, they will be singing to God and saying, Yes, God, just and righteous and holy and true are your ways. Everything that you do is good. Now, how on earth could they say this? How could they sing such things given what is taking place on the earth below? Well, friends, they will sing this because they understand that sin deserves judgment. This is something we don't understand well. We so easily dismiss our sin. We say we are not perfect people, or we say sometimes we make mistakes. We find ways to to minimize our sins against God. Sometimes we sin against God, we experience negative consequences for it, and then we blame God as if it's His fault that our life has been made miserable by our sins. We don't understand the sinfulness of sin. We don't understand the offense that sin is to a holy God. We don't understand how self-destructive sin is. But the angels and saints in heaven, they do understand They do understand. And so as they see God pouring out these end time judgments on the world below, what they see is God finally bringing an end to human rebellion against him. 
They're seeing an end to pain and suffering and misery because these are what sin brings. They see God bringing an end to injustice and oppression. They see God bringing an end to violations of his law. They see righteousness being established on the earth. They see beauty and truth and goodness beginning to take root on this broken planet. And that excites them. And so they say, just and holy are you, God. You are cleansing the world of its sin. You are making all things right. You are preparing the world for the reign of your son. And so I say again, friends, how blessed is the man who is ready for Christ's appearing. How blessed is the man who has been made right with God through repentant faith. How blessed is the man who will not have to face these judgments, who has been redeemed by the grace of God, whose stubborn heart has been overcome. Blessed is the man who will be in heaven singing God's praises rather than on the earth experiencing his judgments during this time. In fact, this is the message of verse 15. Let's look at this verse together now. Verse 15 gives us the words of Christ. He says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Now, friends, at first, this verse can seem a bit out of place. The ESV even puts the verse in parentheses, suggesting it is some kind of an aside. But actually, this is a perfectly placed interjection by our Lord. Let me explain. Okay, way back in chapter 3, verse 3, you might remember that Christ had issued a warning to the church of Sardis. That warning was given to the church before any tribulation judgments began. And this is what God said back there. What Christ said, he said, remember what you've received and heard. Keep it and repent. For if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. What he was saying to the church is, look, there are many unregenerate people within this congregation. He's saying, you must wake up. Remember the gospel you have heard. Embrace it. Repent. Believe. Because if you don't, my appearing will be like a thief. I'll come and you won't be expecting it. And then it'll be too late. You'll be rushed into these tribulation judgments. And then in chapter 3, verse 10, Christ spoke to the church in Philadelphia again before the tribulation begins. Here's what Christ said to that church. He said, Because you have kept my word, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. So there was a blessing to the church of Philadelphia because you have received my gospel. You've embraced my son. I will rescue you out of this world before the hour of trial comes. You will not experience these judgments. My coming will not be as a thief to you because you were awake. You were ready. And so we have a warning to one church. Repent now so that my coming isn't like a thief so that you don't have to endure these judgments. To the other, he says, you've done well. I will not be coming as a thief to you 
you will not experience the judgments. And then beginning in chapter 6, the judgments started to fall. We saw the seal judgments and then the trumpet judgments and now the bowl judgments. And now here we are at the end of chapter 16. The final judgments are being poured out. And here as the whole tribulation is coming to its great climax, as Armageddon is about to commence, Christ enters and he offers those words, Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. He's talking to us here. We saw the warning before the judgments began. Blessed are you if you wake up so you don't have to experience this. Now we're coming to the end of the tribulation judgments, and he's saying to us again, blessed are you if you're awake at my appearing, so that all that we've just talked about for all these chapters, they will not be your experience. Blessed are you if you're awake and clothed when I appear. Because the alternative is to be found asleep at his appearing, which is to say to be spiritually dead at his coming, to be unclothed, to be exposed as one with unrepentant sinfulness, and how awful that will be. And so, no, this isn't just a curious aside. This verse is a perfectly placed reminder of the blessed state of those who have responded to Christ before, before his appearing, before any of these judgments began. And so as we come to the end of this passage, friends, the question we must each answer for ourselves is this. Are we ready for his appearing? Are we ready? Are you ready? If Christ were to appear today to rescue his church from the coming wrath, would you be among those received by him? Or would you be left to face the awful tribulation judgments One day, God will judge us all. And his pronouncement upon us will be based upon what we did with his gospel offer. It'll depend on what we did about his son, Christ. Did we embrace Christ as Lord? Did we claim his atoning sacrifice for sins as our own? Will God's judgments for our sins fall upon Christ? Or will we be found Naked, will we be found uncovered by Christ's righteousness? Will we have to face his judgments ourselves? That is the question we are left with at the end of this text. My friend, if you've not been clothed in Christ's righteousness, respond to his offer today. You may stand before him guilty right now, but, but you can go to him confessing sin, forsaking it, desiring to be under his lordship. He'll receive you. He'll wipe away that record of sins. He'll give you a new heart and a new life. He'll give you a place in heaven with him and one day an inheritance in his kingdom. All of this can be yours through repentant faith. And if you're a believer today, I think the best response is to thank God that he rescues us from the coming wrath. To thank God and then to do your part in fulfilling the Great Commission so that as many as possible can join you in that heavenly choir and not to be on the earth below.
Well, let's pray together as we consider these things. Our Lord, we do thank you for this text. Though there's no joy in reading of the fate of the unregenerate, Lord, there is joy in seeing that you are a holy God and that you are committed to bringing holiness, righteousness, and justice to this world you have made. It's a great joy to us to know that your kingdom will come. Your will shall be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Lord, we pray that if there is anyone who has not yet closed with your Son, that they would do so this very day, that your grace would soften their heart, that they would see the truth of your word, the beauty of your Son, the goodness of the gift that he offers, that they would receive it in wholehearted faith. I pray that they would see the falsehood, the ugliness of sin, that they would have a desire to turn from it to you. I pray, Lord, that you would help this congregation to be faithful to you for as many years as you should give us. Pray that we would be faithful in spreading the gospel, faithful in living out the gospel in our lives, faithful in being salt and light in this world. And Lord, we pray that you would hasten the day when you send your son back, that he would call us home, that he would renew this world, that he would bring his kingdom. We pray these things in his name. Amen.